Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Thanks to you at home for joining me this hour. So today, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy announced that despite having no real evidence, he is opening an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Lucky for us, we don't have to wonder whether or not this is a bad faith effort by Speaker McCarthy. And that is because back in 2015, when he was pitching himself for House leadership, Mr. McCarthy said the quiet part out loud. The question I think you really want to ask me is, how am I going to be different? What are you going to see I love how you asked my questions, but go ahead. That was one of my questions. Go right ahead. I knew you'd want to ask it. What you're going to see is a conservative speaker that takes a conservative Congress that puts a strategy to fight and win. And let me give you one example. Everybody thought Hillary Clinton was unbeatable, right? But we put together a Benghazi special committee, a select committee. What are her numbers today? Her numbers are dropping. Why? Because she's untrustable. But no one would have known any of that had happened had we not I agree. thought and That's made that happen. That's something good. I give you so credit for that. I give you okay, credit so for sequestration. I give you cre- I'll give you credit where credit is due. I'll, I'll give you credit where credit is due. You got her, Kev. You got her. Now, if you don't remember the Benghazi hearings, then I am very jealous. The Republican-led investigation lasted more than two years. It was longer than the investigations into Watergate and 9-11, the JFK assassination, and Pearl Harbor. It was longer than all of those. It cost taxpayers millions of dollars. And a primary focus of all of that was Hillary Clinton, smack dab in the middle of her presidential campaign, a campaign that Speaker McCarthy admitted people thought was unbeatable. Now, when the Benghazi hearings concluded, the final report found no evidence of wrongdoing by former Secretary of State Clinton. But the facts weren't what mattered here. It was about the optics. It was about the messaging. That was a goal. It was about making Secretary Clinton look like a criminal on television for months and months so that she could become, again, in Kevin McCarthy's words, untrustable. Once Republicans had planted that seed, they could litigate and relitigate Clinton's trustability, again, a McCarthyism, over and over again during a campaign, and a campaign that ultimately ended in her defeat. And now, Speaker McCarthy and his party appear to be ready to run the same play against President Biden, just ahead of the 2024 election. Now, remember, there has already been a Republican committee in the House investigating President Biden for months. Earlier this year, that committee released a report that confirmed, much like the Clinton investigation, that there was no evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden. But again, the facts do not seem to be the point here. The point is to create months of conservative TV coverage that makes Biden seem like he is in just as much legal hot water as former President Trump. It is to make Joe Biden untrustable before the 2024 election with the hope that the race ends the same way that it did for Hillary Clinton. This is what they got. This is, if you can believe it, this is the plan. 
But given what Donald Trump is facing himself in the lead up to the 2024 election, four criminal trials, 91 felony counts, including crimes related to trying to overthrow American democracy and recklessly handling national security secrets, given all of that, can Republicans use an impeachment boondoggle to tarnish Biden or at the very least make him look as bad as Donald Trump? Boy, that is an uphill climb. 91 felony counts is not a small number. But remember, the truth is beside the point here. Remember back in 2020, the Republican staff of the Senate Finance and Homeland Security Committees issued this joint report that, among other things, made a very, very specific claim that President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, received a $3.5 million wire transfer from the wife of the former mayor of Moscow. The Washington Post looked into that very specific claim. They even found the wire transfers the committees were referencing. But the Washington Post found no evidence that Hunter Biden was part of those transactions. The claim was not true. But that did not mean that candidate Donald Trump would not use it. Why is it, just out of curiosity, the mayor of Moscow's wife gave your son three and a half million dollars. What did he true. do to deserve it? That what did he do with Barista to deserve one hundred eighty-three thousand dollars? None of that is true. Not an answer. Not none of that is true. Oh, really? Totally he didn't give three and a half Mr. President, it's totally, Mr. President, please. Totally discredited. Totally discredited. And by the way, well, wait, he talk, didn't get three and a half million dollars, Joe. Mr. Vice he got three Mr. And a half President, dollars. it is not true. Oh, really? Mr. Oh. President, but, Mr. You, it's, a, it's an open discussion, please. No, you, you, it's a fact. I, well, there's, you have not raised an issue. Let the been totally, Vice President answer. Mr. President, guy that let him answer. He doesn't want to let me answer because he knows I have the truth. His, his position has been totally, thoroughly discredited. By who? Joining me now is David Pluff, former White House senior advisor under President Obama, and John Heilman, the circus co-host and creator and an MSNBC national affairs analyst. Thank you guys both for being here. John, my head already hurts. First of all, I have PTSD from the 20... We all have PTSD. Hasn't your point. head been hurting for like now about yes, seven, seven basically, years? Basically? Decades, honestly. Yeah. But I do, I mean, obviously we've seen this play run before, right? We have heard the name Hunter Biden. Is there anything meaningfully different between the last time the Republicans tried to use this and what we are facing, what we are looking down into in 2024? Well, I think um, let's be clear. I think that there is there's some there's been some some evidence adduced that make it appear uh, that there's a lot to look into in terms of what Hunter Biden did. Mm -hmm. And there's been some that, that story has moved forward. There's also questions around the way that the Justice Department has treated Hunter Biden. Those are things that have been uh, that that there's reason to uh, focus on them. There is reason to care about them. They should be investigated. It's possible he's committed crimes. It's possible he should go to jail. What there isn't so far as everybody is making the point, and I'll say again, there's no what has not changed is that there is no more evidence that Joe Biden had anything to do with any of it in any meaningful way. So there's more grist to this, I would say, because Hunter Biden has clearly behaved in ways that are unseemly yeah. and unethical possibly illegal. There's more to it than the Benghazi thing. There's more to say about that. Although in well, the Benghazi, in the Benghazi is, case, at least she was Secretary of State. Yeah, And also there's more to Hunter Biden. Yes. There is still nothing that ties any of this to Joe Biden. For so when sure. you say there's more than Benghazi with respect to a Biden. I totally agree. And so you're asking what's different. What's different yeah. is they have more grist for an illegitimate mill. 
that that gives them more fuel to run the play that you laid out, which they have tried to run over and over again. It's the same play. It's just that because Hunter Biden is, in fact, more problematic on his own than what happened in Benghazi was, which turns out to have been the terrible loss of life, but not anything that had to do with uh, with, with with corruption or with anything about American foreign policy that that could be uh, pinned on Hillary Clinton. That that was truly a political nothing burger. In this case, the children of presidents, the spouses of presidents, as David Pluff knows, although in his, the case of his boss, Barack Obama, he didn't have these problems. No, he sure did uh, not. Because he had the, the perfect family, essentially. But it's historically Democrats and Republicans have had to carry that burden. It is still the case. The most important thing to say in this is that, as many Republicans admit, either publicly or privately, there's still no real connection to Joe Biden. That is obviously not going to stop Republicans. I think it could, in the end, lead to Republicans losing the House, uh, although it'll probably allow Kevin McCarthy to keep his uh, his, his speakership for at least for at least a little while. I do. David, I want to get to the congressional dynamics in a second. But just I mean, I marvel that this so far seems like the big play for 2024. You're not seeing anybody on the national stage disavow this effort. This is very much something Donald Trump wants. You're seeing his foot soldiers, soldiers in Congress march in line. And I wonder, you know, from the as a Democratic strategist, what is the response? What should the response be from the the Biden White House? And and more broadly, you know, what do you make of this tactic? Well, Alex, I think assuming we're looking at a Biden Trump matchup, which smart money would suggest we are, you know, one of the core arguments that Joe Biden and his campaign will make, amongst others, is, you know, we can't allow the Trump circus back into town. And what you're going to have now is all of his deputy clowns. McCarthy and the other House leaders, you know, wasting time and money on an impeachment. There's plenty of arguments to make against Joe Biden's reelection, as there is any incumbent. Um, This, I think, only adds to the argument that Biden and his campaign can make um, that Americans don't want to return to the Trump show. And I think John's last point is really important, which is this is happening largely because Kevin McCarthy has to do this to satisfy the hordes in his conference to keep uh, his conference to keep his job. But in those swing districts in California, in New York, that gave them the majority. You know, should Joe Biden, should there be impeachment hearings? Should Joe Biden be impeached? You know, this is going to be deeply unpopular. So once again, this is another evidence. We've been seeing this for well over a decade now where they've got this, you know, kind of perverted universe, you know, Fox and Breitbart and Sinclair. And that's all they care about is speaking to that, even if it does damage uh, in the middle of the country and in the middle of the electorate, which something like this, I think, will do. I I. And I do want to talk about the congressional dynamics in a second, John. But you are um, you have studied Joe Biden as as a journalist. And one of the things that has been so enduring is this man's legacy of integrity and decency. Right. I mean, we all remember the, the, the convention videos where it's like, you know, the Amtrak employee talking about what a good guy he is. I mean, trying to upend what is now a decades old legacy in American life is really hard to do. And I think Republicans they keep trying to do this with Biden, right? Saying that he's a tool of the radical left or what, whatever the the um, particular arrow is that day, but not none of it has really stuck thus far. And I, I sort of think it's a fool's errand to keep trying it. And yet at the same time, woe be to the White House that is overly dismissive of all this. Right. And, and look, here's the, here's the additional fool's errand, right? If you pump a mu- enough uh, mud and toxic, noxious stuff out there in the 
in the media ecosystem, you're going to see some numbers move, right? So what's happened is, you know, we see these polls that say a 61% majority uh, says that, that Biden had at least some involvement in Hunter Biden's business dealings, right? The Republicans watch these numbers go up. They get all excited about that. You know, okay, 42% think he behaved illegally. That's the Republican base. 42% think, think Joe Biden's That's a in the GOP. Yes. No, no, I'm saying that's 42% of the country, which is basically those are Republicans. Those are Republicans. Those are Republicans. Those. A bunch of other people think he might have acted unethically, but not illegally. And eh. And the thing that I, that, that, that I would ask David about even to comment on is that the problem with all of these numbers is the question of salience, you know, that, that you can people have lots of views about lots of things that they never vote on. And the idea that that there's that the Republicans are throwing all this mud at Joe Biden and at Hunter Biden, and some of it might be sticking a little bit, but it's not sticking meaningfully in the sense that. Yes, a higher percentage now think maybe he was involved in Hunter's business dealings. But how many? Where does that rank on the things they're going to vote for president on? Uh, to me, that's the thing. If you go around the country and talk to people, you're not running to people in the middle of the electorate who are yep. going, you know, I, I want to wait and see how this Hunter Biden investigation comes down because that's the thing I'm going to decide about with respect to Joe Biden. They're worried about the fate of democracy, or they're worried about their jobs, or they're worried about their health care. They're not worried about this thing, even if they say, yeah, it looks a little fishier than it did six months ago. It's still like. No Number 27 of the On things the that they care about. Uh, David, to that end, it's like if you're talking about that, the margins, right, which are always really tight, do they care more about the fact that Joe Biden may have, if you believe the Republican spin, been somehow tangentially involved in Hunter Biden's business dealings? Do they care about that more than they care about the fact that Republicans in Congress are wasting a lot of time and money trying to spin something out of an impeachment inquiry. I mean, and I, that's, I think politically, could you talk more about the price that Republicans pay in Congress if they move forward on this? What's fascinating to me, Alex, now Mitch McConnell has talked about this through the years where they should have won Senate seats and the majority any number of times, but they had candidates, you know, that appealed to those that will cheer this impeachment inquiry. Uh, but they basically repel swing voters. The rest of the party, Kevin McCarthy is puzzling because he's presiding over a historically narrow House majority. And it seems like the lens he's looking out is like to please Matt Gates of the world, not protect his vulnerable members. Same thing presidentially. They don't act as if this is going to come down to a small number of states and a small number of voters in those states. And John's point about salience is important. When I used to run campaigns, when you thought about an issue, or a crisis, or a scandal, or an accomplishment through a political lens. All that matters is, is that something that's going to actually drive vote? Meaning, is someone going to vote for you that wasn't going to, or vice versa, vote against you? Is someone now going to turn out that wasn't? If not, then it's not a, it's, it's, it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, and I just think the Republican Party right now, writ large, is focused on the circus, on this sort of perverted atmosphere uh, uh, and dome that they all live under and not thinking about the John's point, you know, in the Phoenix suburbs, uh, in the suburbs of Atlanta, in Waukesha County in Wisconsin, you know, in Allegheny County in Pennsylvania, the small number of voters that will determine this presidential election are not going to think that this impeachment is important to them. And I think we'll signal that uh, they continue to be a party uh, that's catering to the extreme right. And so it's very puzzling to me because we have election after election where Republicans probably could have done better if they paid more attention to the center of the electorate.
<laughs> yeah, those are words to live by. You could have done better if you actually paid attention to the electorate, period. David Pluff, thank you for your expertise this evening. As always, John Heilman, stay in that seat, please, because okay. we have a lot more. I appreciate more. what David said that somebody's paying attention to the circus. I like that. Yeah, that the, the circus, uh, which is coming back this fall. We'll have more on that in a second. We have a lot more to get to this evening, including the creative ways Republicans are raising money to help pay the legal fees of some of Trump's co-defendants. And it includes baby back ribs. Probably. But first, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville seems pretty certain that he will continue to block military promotions, even if he is not exactly sure of what is at stake. More on that coming up next. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. The Senate is now back in session, which means Tommy Tuberville is back at his blockade. The junior senator from Alabama and former football coach is still single-handedly holding up hundreds of military appointments, all part of his one-man pressure campaign to get the Department of Defense to stop paying for travel when a service member goes out of state to get an abortion or other reproductive health care. Coach Tuberville's protest has been going on since February, and right now the Army and the Navy and the Marine Corps are without leaders who have been confirmed by the Senate. If Senator Tuberville keeps this up through the end of this month, the country will also be without a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That is because, by law, the current chair, General Mark Milley, must leave at the end of his four-year term, a fact that Senator Tuberville seemed to be unaware of yesterday. Have you had any more conversations with DOD or... White House or anything? No. Do you expect to speak to them before Millie's retirement date hits? When is that? End of the month? Yeah, October first. Yeah. I'll call Millie and wish him good luck, but I don't, I don't know whether he'll go anywhere until, until they get somebody confirmed. He's but statutorily he can't. He has to leave on. October. He has to leave. Yeah. He's out. We'll get somebody else to do the job. Uh, but uh, I'm hopefully it's done by then. Sooner or later, they gotta, they gotta decide to do something. It is unclear who the they in the situation is, but by law, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff serves at the pleasure of the president for a term of four years, beginning on October 1st of an odd-numbered year. 2023 is an odd-numbered year. Only in a time of war does that term limit not apply, and that is why the Biden administration picked General Milley's replacement months ago. Air Force General Charles Q. Brown was nominated back in May, but the Senate has yet to vote on him. 
Today, the Senate Majority Leader urged Tuberville to end his blockade of Brown and 300 other flag officers and called on Republicans to pressure him as well. It's absurd, absurd. It's caused by Tuberville, solely by Tuberville. He has to back off. They should give, they should be telling Tuberville, and maybe they are, privately, that he should back off. As of right now, Senator Tuberville is showing no signs of backing off. This is what he told Meet the Press Now this afternoon. I'm not holding up readiness. I'm not holding up these nominations. Just bring uh, General uh, C.Q. Brown to the floor, who they want to be the, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He'll be uh, nominated within two hours, and he will be confirmed. They do not want to do that. So with me here, MSNBC National Affairs Analyst and co-host and executive producer of the Showtime. The Showtime. The Circus on Showtime. My alma mater. Yeah, John. I was going to say you forgot how soon they forget. Yeah. Okay. The, the <laughs> politics of what's happening in the House are so bad for Republicans. Yeah. The politics of Tommy Tuberville, his hold that, you know, is hurting the military. And oh, by the way, also bringing up the top of a topic of reproductive freedom over and over again. The politics are so bad for the GOP. Do you have thoughts on how Republicans can even begin to play this? I, I, I don't really. I, it's funny listening to when David Plouffe just before made a comment about Mitch McConnell. We're so reflexively used to now kind of thinking the House Republicans are the problem for the Republicans nationally. Yeah. And comparatively speaking, the Senate is relative, comparatively only sane. This is an example of like the upper chamber is also kind of off the, off the trolley, off the rails. The trolley's gone off the rails. Nikki Haley had, had this thing where she said, we have to have a competency test for president, right? Um, I think if you had a political IQ test for the Senate, the first person who would fail out would be Tommy <laughs> Tuberville, who's, who's just, you know, hey, let's be, let's make the, the, the Republican Party look bad on the military and also raise high the issue of abortion and just hand these issues so the Democrats, Democrats love Tommy Tuberville. Everybody, you know, that's the briar patch that Joe Biden would like to live in for the next 18 months. Keep this hold forever, Tommy. Bad for the country, great for my politics. Well, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous that Mitch McConnell is, is ready to kill himself. Well, it's, it, is, it is testament to the fact that nobody's driving the bus, really, honestly, in either chamber, it feels like. The fact that Kevin McCarthy is making these concessions to the far right flank and that even even Mitch McConnell can't talk Tuberville out of this hold. I mean, it's one of the things of, I would say, with respect to Mitch McConnell, it's one of the things of the widespread perception in the Senate that Mitch McConnell is, is not what he once was and do, is not exercising the kind, a kind of iron political leadership that he once did, that people feel Mitch McConnell is going to go and get in Tommy Tuberville's face at this point. I think that is no longer operative in the, in the Senate. And the Senate is not yet the House, but there's these flickers of it. Uh, on the Republican side, Tommy Tuberville is, the, is, is like a blaring siren of, of how uh, out of control Republicans can be in the Senate. And how, again, how bad it could be for the party in 2024. Yeah. And, and by dint of that, the country. John Heilman, my friend, thank you for hanging for two blocks. It's great to see you as always. I, I have to leave now? <laughs> no, you could just, could just sit awkwardly over there. If they have beer over there, I'll just go. We're working on that. Still much more ahead tonight. How the Fulton County DA plans to try Trump and his 18 co-defendants all together in the Georgia election case. Those details are set to be released any minute now. We've been counting it down. More on that is coming up right after the break. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. 
Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Last week, former President Donald Trump hosted a candlelight dinner at his New Jersey golf club to raise money to help pay for Rudy Giuliani's monster legal bills. Tickets were $100,000 a plate, and Mr. Giuliani apparently collected more than $1 million for, from the candlelit dinner, which is good news for Rudy Giuliani since Trump is reportedly refusing to pay Giuliani's bills himself. Trump just pays for the candles. Down in Georgia, three Republican fake electors indicted for their alleged roles in a conspiracy to steal the 2020 election. They are apparently also similarly in need of funds. But instead of candles at Bedminster, a local Republican Party chapter is putting together a barbecue and a silent auction in November to raise money for them. All of these creative event ideas are part of what appears to be a season of fundraising for fake electors and election deniers. It began in Michigan last month with Michonne Maddock, one of the 16 fake electors facing felony charges in that state, hosting a poolside pop-up to raise money to cover the legal bills for all the fake electors in Michigan. Maddock charged $30 a ticket. She provided the snacks, but told people on the invitation to, quote, bring your own drink. We do not know how much Ms. Maddock raised, and it is unclear if poolside Doritos and baby back ribs are going to suffice here. There is a lot of legal peril on the horizon. In Georgia, for example, the defendants in that case are accused of participating in a wide ranging conspiracy to subvert the will of the voters. And now at this point, at least five of the fake electors in that state have introduced motions to have their cases moved from Fulton County to a federal court. But that effort is not going well. The first request to remove the case to federal court made by Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, that was flatly rejected on Friday by federal judge Steve Jones. And the fake electors, who are all claiming they acted as federal officials when they cosplayed as legitimate electors, they could very well face a similar outcome. Now, as for the future of all of the 19 defendants in that Georgia RICO case, Fulton County DA Fannie Willis has until 11.59 p.m. tonight to try to convince a judge that she can both fairly and efficiently try all 19 defendants together on October 23rd. We have some breaking news on that front just ahead. October 23rd is six weeks from yesterday. It is also the day that the trial for the first two co-defendants in Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis's RICO case in that state, and this is the day that's set to begin. The DA's prosecution team has told the media and a Fulton County judge that they would like to try all 19 co-defendants together and that they can do so by October 23rd. The judge in the case has asked the prosecution to tell him by this evening just how exactly the prosecution plans to do it. And we have just gotten the prosecution's filing 
via the public docket. And tonight, the AP is reporting on some of its contents, saying that prosecutors still maintain that all the defendants should be tried together, citing efficiency and fairness, quote, Holding several lengthy trials instead would create an enormous strain on the judicial resources of the county superior court and would randomly favor the defendants tried later, who would have the advantage of seeing the state's evidence and arguments ahead of time, according to prosecutors. Joining me now to discuss this breaking news is Mary McCord, a former assistant U.S. attorney in D.C., former acting assistant attorney general for national security at the DOJ and co-host of the MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Mary. Um, let me just first get your reaction to the prosecution's explanation of how and why all 19 defendants should be tried together, that it is about um, fairness and resources and efficiency. Well, I understand that desire because no prosecutor wants to do 19 separate trials um, or really even five or six separate trials all uh, involving the same evidence and basically the same facts. And so I think, and, and mind you, I have not yet gotten to see the actual filing because it just really hit the, hit the books, I guess. Um, so I'm, I'm basing this purely on what the AP is reporting. But I, so I understand Fannie Willis saying we'd like to try as many together as possible, but I do think it's unrealistic here for a, a number of reasons to think all 19 can go to trial on October 23rd. First, five have pending motions. Well, one, pe- four have pending motions to remove. One has a motion to remove that's just been decided uh, against him. That's Mark Meadows. That is now up on appeal in the 11th Circuit. The 11th Circuit has set a briefing schedule. So five defendants, you know, might not even be going to trial in the state, state court. They might be removed to federal court or at least have a shot at that. And that might not be decided finally through appeals by October 23rd. The other issue is that you have people who have asserted their speedy trial, right? That is um, Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell, and others have not asserted that speedy trial, right? And might want to have more time to prepare for trial. So to force them to go to trial on such a a really rapid clock here. I mean, October 23rd is just around the corner. That could really infringe on their due process rights. So I think what Bonnie Willis is trying to do here is say, look, we understand. I mean, I don't know that she said this, but even if there needs to be some separations of cases and not all 19 at once, we don't want this to be piecemeal one after the other after the other. So if people want to have their trial separate from October 23rd, they need to at least maybe agree that they're not going to then one by one seek speedy trials, then therefore splitting all of those people up into additional separate trials. Because each time you assert your speedy trial right, that means under Georgia law, you have to go to trial in the next term of the court, which is usually a month later. So that could be, you could see how it could, you know, parse out very piecemeal if they all asserted at various times. So I think she's just trying to get as many to court in trial at at one time as possible. And the judge probably wants that too. But 19 at one time on October 23rd, I just don't see that happening. I mean, the prosecution, Mary, has maintained that they're going to present the same evidence and the same number of witnesses, no matter who's being tried. Do you think that that's sort of an argument to try and get the judge to try as many at the same time as possible? Or do you think that's legitimate? Because they sort of seem to, again, I haven't read the filing either because it just went up on the docket. But according to the AP's reporting, you know, they're making the case 
that defendants tried later would have the advantage of seeing the state's evidence and arguments ahead of time, suggesting that the state's going to be presenting the same evidence and arguments at each one of these trials. Yeah, I mean, they are right about that to a certain extent. When you're charging a conspiracy, you're putting on the Constitution, the, the, the constellation of evidence in support of that conspiracy in each trial. However, different defendants are charged with different aspects of that conspiracy. When I say that, I don't mean they're not charged with the conspiracy as a whole because they are, but the overt acts and the, and the, um, predicate, uh, crimes that various, um, defendants are accused of participating in do differ. For example, you have the fraudulent elector scheme, you have the Coffee County scheme to actually access the voting equipment, you have the shakedown scheme to intimidate and threaten um, and coerce Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. So there's different, you know, pieces of this. So depending on how the defendants were grouped, you could probably cut down the overlap in your evidence, not eliminate it completely, but you could focus more on certain aspects of the conspiracy in, uh, let's say, a trial of all those involved in the fraudulent elector scheme. You could focus more on different aspects in uh, in a trial involving all those involved in the Coffee County scheme. So, And we've seen cases broken up. Think about what we just had in, in D.C. with the Oath Keepers. There were more than a dozen tried, and the, the judge thought that that was too many to have uh, go to trial at once. So we broke them into two groups. And yes, there was some repetitiveness in terms of the evidence produced. And yes, you one could argue that the second group of defendants had an advantage by seeing some of that evidence. But that's just, you know, that's the practical nature of being able to actually get to court and give everyone due process there, uh, which they're afforded under the Constitution. Yeah, the only issue I see there is that Kenneth Chesborough and Sidney Powell are going to be tried together, maybe as early as October 23rd. And they both, they're involved in this vast conspiracy, but Ken Chesborough's fake elector is Sidney Powell's Coffee County voting machine. So already That's right. the coalition is breaking down. Um, Mary, thank right. you for bearing with me on this breaking news. I know we're going to hear lots more about it uh, on your podcast soon. I appreciate your time and brilliant thoughts as always. Thank you. Still more to come this evening. The Republican Party has managed to cling to power through demographic shifts that might have otherwise relegated it to minority status. And we are going to hear from two experts on how democracies die and also what can be done to save ours. Okay. The multiple conservative efforts in the House and the Senate and even this on the Supreme Court, all in service to an ex-president who has never won the popular vote. They are all a very strong reminder of just how pervasive minority rule actually is in this country and just how far that minority is willing to go to maintain power. As Harvard government professors Daniel Zeblatt and Stephen Levitsky write in their new book, Tyranny of the Minority, we have studied violent insurrections and efforts to overturn elections all over the world, from France and Spain to Ukraine and Russia to the Philippines, Peru and Venezuela. We never imagined we'd see them here, nor did we ever imagine that one of America's two major parties would turn away from democracy in the 21st century. Professor Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zeblatt join me here tonight. This, this is a very, very timely uh, book, guys. Thank you for writing it and joining me on set tonight. Let me just first start with, I mean, we began the show talking about sort of 
the minority uh, working its way through Congress in terms of an agenda to attempt to impeach uh, the president. Now, it's a minority of Republicans, but still it is not a desire shared greatly by the American public, at least from what we know from polling. What do you make of the Republican Party at this point? I know you we read that quote, but is it is it a force of anti-democratic um, is it effectively an anti-democratic force in American society at present? Well, in our book, we propose a set of criteria for citizens to evaluate whether a political party is democratic or not. Yeah. Um, and to be a loyal Democrat, to be committed to democracy, you have to do three things. You have to accept elections, win or lose. You have to not use violence to gain power, to hold on to power. And then most tricky of all, you have to distance yourself, if you're a par- party or politician, from groups, allies that undertake those first two violations. And so that third criteria is really important because often you'll have mainstream parties or politicians wearing suits and ties looking like normal Democratic politicians, but who turn a blind eye to or justify or excuse these other kinds of violations. And when parties do that, there's a term for that. We call that semi, you're a semi-loyal Democrat. Yeah. And in the history of democracies, it's those kinds of political parties that often kill democracies. And so that, that's why we're worried about today, because we see some of these signs in the United States. You, you said you, in, the, in that quote we read that you, you never thought you'd see the Republican Party effectively or one of the parties acting the way that it has. Is there a moment when that realization crystallized for you? Is there a particular thing that that really caused you to assess the GOP in that way? Well, there were several steps. Uh, We wrote our first book, How Democracies Die, with the rise of Trump. And we were deeply disturbed uh, early on by the Republican Party leadership. There were very few Trump supporters among the party leadership. And they could have moved much more decisively to, to block him or separate the party from him had they chosen to do so. But they they abdicated their what we call their gatekeeping responsibilities yeah. uh, and and supported him, despite the fact that they knew pretty well what was coming. They had an idea. Um, and then during Trump's presidency, I think this happened a little faster than I expected. But watching people like Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, eventually Liz Cheney go to every single Republican who stood uh, up it, for the rule of law, who stood up for democracy, who stood up against Trump, saw her or his political career essentially ended. And so most Republicans who wanted to continue their careers decided that no matter what, the, whatever they thought privately of Trump, they would become Trumpist in public. And that's when we knew that um, this party was now a danger to democracy. And it's not and it's not just one party. It's also institutions that have effectively been bastardized, for lack of a better word, and exert far more control than they should over American society. And and it's a minority of people making those decisions. I'd love to get your thoughts on the Supreme Court and its current very conservative bent that seems at odds with what Americans actually want. Yeah, well, we're we're really unique in the world in that in the United States, it's possible for a minority, somebody who loses an election to become president. Yeah. Um, through the Electoral College. We're the only country in the world with an Electoral College. And so what that, what, what that means is that often the winning, uh, the, somebody who wins a popular vote doesn't win control of the presidency. Similar, similar dynamic is at work in the U.S. Senate, where often the, the popular majority of voters doesn't reflect the majority in the Senate. Yes. And this then combines to affect the Supreme Court because the president picks that uh, nominates Supreme Court justices, the Senate confirms them. And so take 2016, for instance. In 2016, we had a president who didn't win the popular majority, 
nominating three justices confirmed by a Senate not reflecting a majority of voters. And we now have a Supreme Court, the 6-3 conservative majority, not reflecting anything that the majority of uh, American voters wanted. And so we see this. This is essentially minority rule. And this is where the title of our book comes from. And and then the question is, okay, so what do we do about it and how do we fix it? I I did not know until your book came along that Richard Nixon actually wanted to do away with the Electoral College. I think we have one of the headlines here. I have not abandoned, this is 1969, Richard Nixon, I have not abandoned my personal feeling that the candidate who wins the most popular votes should become president. This was not just, first of all, this is Nixon, as in Nixon. (laughs) And it was a bipartisan effort. So what happened? This is a really important point. We don't think of it now. We've grown up in an era, the last half century, where institutional change, constitutional change, is kind of off the table. It's not discussed. It's considered impossible. That actually hasn't always been the case. From the very beginning of this country, our citizens and our leaders have worked to make our political system more democratic. George Washington, the very year that the Constitution was written, wrote a letter to a friend saying, that this is an imperfect document that will and we up to future generations to improve it. And that's what we've done, whether it's expanding the suffrage um, or in the early 20th century, uh, directly electing Senate. We used to have an appointed Senate. We have slowly moved and made the, our system more democratic. We stopped doing it in the late 50s. And one of the one of the last serious efforts was the effort to 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 um, abolish the Electoral College, which came really close to passing. It was supported by the leaders of both parties. It was supported, as you said, by by President Nixon, by the American Bar Association, by the Chamber of Commerce, by the AFL-CIO, by more than 70 percent of Americans, passed overwhelmingly in the House, had a majority in the Senate, but didn't get the two-thirds to to get through. Ironic. We came really close. So there was a time when constitutional reform was considered important, good, Feasible. And I think we need to get back to that American tradition of working to make our democracy better. Well, I, yeah, and I would agree with you. We need to get back to that tradition. But how do you do that when one of the main impediments to that work is a party that is fundamentally anti-democratic as, as it presently stands? Yeah, well, it, 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 it's a challenge. I mean, this is but this is something that we have to embrace. We have to figure out. And there is a path there. I think there is a path forward. And so, for instance, I mean, there's some in our, the last chapter of our book, we propose 15 different ideas. And so there is a way forward. And, and one key step is to uh, eliminate the filibuster, at least weaken the filibuster, because that's a kind of even though it's a small institution, it's not part of the Constitution. It's just a Senate rule. If we were to eliminate that or to weaken that, then it would be possible, for instance, to get voting rights reforms through. If we had voting rights reforms through, the, the reforms begin to accumulate and, and a kind of sense that reform is actually possible would emerge in our country. And that's what we really think needs to happen to address these bigger challenges like the Electoral College, like term limits for the, the Supreme Court. And so that's that's the way forward. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because what you guys propose is is fairly radical change. We're talking about constitutional amendments, changing the Electoral College, uh, you know, th- these institutions that are seen as foundational to democracy are precisely the ones that need to change. And it's actually an argument for Democrats and Republicans alike, because we have a president who's loath to get rid of the filibuster because he's an institutionalist. But what I'm hearing is in order to be a more representative, fairer democracy, we have to change those institutions. It's not a reaction to it, it is the only way forward. Look, Americans may not realize this. We're the only democracy on Earth that regularly uses the filibuster. And every other established democracy in the world, regular legislation passes with a majority. 
It doesn't need 60 votes to pass. One that that's really undermining our democracy because Americans look out and they 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 see that majority support gun control. They see that majority support voting rights legislation. That majorities may support abortion rights legislation, and they and none of this stuff can get through. So the, the will of often large majorities in the United States is being thwarted regularly, systematically, permanently by a partisan minority. That doesn't happen in other democracies. They update their constitutions. They right. move forward. It is an ongoing experiment in self-governance. Professor Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, thank you for writing this. It is essential reading in these times. And may I say it is also hopeful, which is a really unique thing also in these times. Thank you both for your work and thanks for being here tonight. Thank you. That is our show for this evening. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM.